0: Welcome to a Shot in the Arm podcast. I'm Ben Plumley, and this is the podcast about innovation and equity in global health. Now, in this episode, part of our informal take on global health security, we're taking stock of how resilient the world is in balancing what now seems to be endemic COVID while sustaining existing infectious disease responses and preparing for disease X, for future pandemic threats, All of this in the midst of great geopolitical and economic turmoil. To help us make sense of all of this, I'm joined by two giants of global health diplomacy. Ambassador Mark Dybul, co-director of the Center for Global Health Practice and Impact, and professor in the Department of Medicine at Georgetown University, and Ambassador Eric Goosby, friend of a Shot in the Arm podcast, professor of medicine and director of global health Uh, Delivery and Diplomacy at the Institute for Global Health Sciences at the University of California, San Francisco. Now, they're both former global AIDS ambassadors and coordinators of PEPFAR. Mark under President George W. Bush and Eric under President Barack Obama. Uh, Mark went on, of course, to be the Executive Director of the Global Fund to fight AIDS, TB, and Malaria. And Eric, of course, the UN Secretary General's Special Envoy on TB. Gentlemen, welcome to a shot in the arm podcast. Thank you. Good to be with you, Ben. And Eric. So we're holding, we're having this podcast, um, literally uh recording it at the same time that we have um uh the 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 COP28 taking place in Egypt. And I just wonder, um, actually it's COP27, isn't it? And I just wondered um what you both think of how health is being presented um at this um at this conference, and in these conversations about um uh, climate chaos um and and just how all of this relates to old, current and new pandemic threats. Mark, I don't know if you have thoughts on this first.
1: um, I, I you know, to be honest, I think we're still a little bit too focused on. Um, the pandemic threat, which we absolutely need to be, uh, new pandemic threats, but we're not connecting the dots. Um, You know, if you think about the Venn diagram of what are the root causes of climate change and what are the root causes of poor health, uh, it's a pretty massive uh, interlay. Um, We tend to focus on climate change, increasing the risk of new Bugs or old bugs like um, malaria coming into regions they haven't been because it's getting warmer on the tops of mountains, and, um, or the recent you know you know bacteria being released from 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 um, uh, glaciers and things like that. Whereas we if we think about what what are root causes of the of of climate uh, change and health, um, urbanization, pollution. Um, uh, proximity of people to animals, as we're getting closer and closer to animals. Um, the the pesticides, herbicides, you know, the UN recently reported that we've passed the, the safety levels, uh, health safety levels for every type subclass of pesticide, organophosphide, um, uh, and that those are real health risks to humans. Um, but we don't connect these dots. Uh, and I and so I think the conversations are there, but they're not there in a, in a concentrated, focused way. And I think we could take some time to just do a Venn diagram of what's dry, what are the root causes uh, of current issues for health, but also future threats to health, um, and then start addressing them in a systematic way. Um, you know, Eliminating um, mass production of, of animals, for example, and getting back to regenerative farming, which would be phenomenal for the environment, would also have tremendous health benefits um, uh, immediately by the, 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 the damage done by pesticides, herbicides, organophosphates to humans, but also um, be the best thing to prevent the zoonotic jump of an animal, you know, from an animal to a human. So I, the conversations are there, but they need to get a lot more sophisticated uh, and faster.
0: And you're basically referring to, I think, in part, well, I guess out here we we sort of invented it, didn't we, Eric? Certainly, UC Davis was at the forefront of defining one health, and and I've got my head around it over the last couple of years. This interplay between globalization, closer interaction with animals, um, and then the transfer, as you said, the zoonotic transfer of of, of um, new pathogens. But um, Eric, I I, I wondered. You have been, well, both of you have been masters at joining the dots, but how do we from the global health community, do you think, incorporate climate chaos into our thinking? Um, we, we still seem to be a little bit siloed, I think.
2: No, I uh, strongly agree that with Mark and you, Ben, that this is truly um, a threat that we have allowed to be in the background in the medical community and in the response in the medical, on the medical platforms to the threats presented by global climate change. there um, There is a huge overlap. We also don't define the response specifically in disease, disease progression, uh, kind of maldistribution of incidence of disease as a function of climate changes, Mark outlined most of them. Um, And I think we do a disservice to uh, other scientists uh, in the field that are non-medical and to the population community at large because it's a complicated dot connection exercise, but a real one that has been there and it's been measured in part. Uh, The observations and measurements have increased over the last, you know, 20 years, but the reaction to that data um, has either not been, which is most common, or has been less than optimal or less than even the minimal response needed to change a trajectory. I think the cry uh, in the meetings in Egypt uh, are, it's uh, we're at the, the point where it may be too late, uh, and, um, and they, they still don't kind of articulate the specifics of that. So I'm frustrated with it, but I have to own the fact that um, the medical side of the equation has not aggressively engaged this. Um, I think the one health, uh, the idea of um, antimicrobial resistance that comes out of that is the only thing that Mark didn't bring up in his in his in his lip, uh, which we all see as uh, imminent, and in tuberculosis, it's especially. Uh, scary with the leading resistance patterns uh, being in the response to treatment of MDR and XDR-TB. There needs to be a rekindling and a crescendo of uh, import by medical community, climate community. There are scientists and medical people who generally don't talk to each other. Mm. That is slowly moving um, together. Uh, The UC Davis team has been uh, champion uh, just what are the relevant pieces of their work that the medical community needs to uh, respond to uh, and incorporate in both research and in diagnostic treatment responses. I would only end with um, the inequities in maldistribution of exposure uh, and outcomes as a result from, uh, from uh, renal disease to uh, direct toxins from organophosphates that Mark mentioned are pathetic. We've known about it and understood Mm -hmm. it and have not reacted to protect. And there's no excuse for that.
0: Well, while we're on a downer, um, (laughs) the other thing, of course, context-wise, is the um, outbreak in Uganda of um, uh, a new strain of Ebola, the so-called Sudan strain. And I just wondered, both of you, how seriously should we be taking this? Um, I, I see that um, you know numbers are increasing, including infections and deaths in um, healthcare workers, and of course, our existing Ebola vaccines um, are are not proven to be effective against them. How worried are you about this outbreak?
2: Well, I, I could say worried. Uh, the numbers um, have been kind of under the one hundred and fifty mark, uh, kind of creeping up. Uh, The deaths have gone up with that. Uh, Healthcare workers are always uh, the first hit, disproportionately hit in Ebola outbreaks. Uh, The way the awareness in the community uh, generally is generated comes usually from a healthcare site and the personnel in it who first engage it uh, as kind of a a formal engagement and not just a a family reacting to a sick relative. And I do think that um, it has not crescendoed uh, as much as um, I I, I have to admit, I've kind of lost track with exactly where it is in the last couple of weeks, but at the end of October, it looked like it was plateauing out. But I know these things, you know, have daily uh, inputs that that could change that. so um, I have to plead a little ignorance to the specifics of where the outbreak is. Mark, what is your sense? Well,
1: whenever there's a new strain of any um, virus, we have to be worried. Um, but um, I think we can be pretty comfortable where we are with it. I mean, um, the re- first of all, Uganda has a long history and are doing it again, are responding quite well to Ebola outbreaks, and they're doing it again. Uh, and the surrounding countries are now teamed up and WHO is doing a fantastic job. I think it's a good example of how regional uh, activity can function, um, which doesn't surprise me because, you know, Africa as a continent had uh, the best regional response to COVID of any region in the world by far. Um, uh, and John Kengesong, uh who uh, is now running PEPFAR, uh, was had a huge role in that, but the heads of state got on it right away and, and WHO is deeply involved. And so I, I think their the response has been, you know, as strong as it can be. 50% of the cases are still in a single County. Uh, there are no cases reported outside of Uganda yet. Um, and they know what they're doing. Their case contact rate is exactly where you'd want it to be, you know, relative to the number of cases. They're approaching, I think, 10,000 case contacts, mm-hmm uh with 105 15 cases or so so you know they're doing a fantastic job and i i the what, but you're always worried when a virus which you know trans uh, is a new variant but it just doesn't seem to be fundamentally different than Ebola which is never going to be a global pandemic um uh so uh you know
0: i because think it burns itself out too quickly right i think
1: are going to be yeah
0: um well and that nicely gets us on to to um i i i think the core and perhaps the 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 positive start of the conversation around just how resilient our health systems have been um y- y- you know through the period of covid um through a period where we've been uh, trying to maintain our response to htb and malaria um but Eric, WHO recently report uh, released a, actually I think a very nice graphic report on the impact on um, uh, the TB response, noting unfortunately that uh, you know number of diagnoses had increased and morbidity mortality had increased, and yet we also saw courtesy of global fund uh, investments in in different parts of the world, and I'm thinking particularly of Bangladesh. That um y- you know, the infrastructure that had been developed to handle TB was um was mobilized and pivoted to help manage COVID and then uh was able to to pick up. And countries like Bangladesh are actually ahead of the curve uh, in terms of um diagnoses and monitoring. So just just what's your sense of of how resilient our health infrastructures have been globally?
2: Well, I think that um that phenomena was seen everywhere. Uh, The people who were asked to respond to the COVID outbreak were also the people involved in uh, HIV and TB care specifically, both at the clinic sites uh, uh, as well as in the community. Uh, Those networks and platforms were already laid and uh, appropriately were used to uh, move both educational information and when available, uh, vaccine testing, uh, and in a very small number of cases outside of developed settings, uh, treatments. Uh, I think that um, the um, overwhelming uh, emphasis on it, the pendulum swing toward COVID and back to HIV, TB, malaria type programming, uh, it has started the awareness of the displaced uh, um attention to the diseases was evident immediately uh, and monitored. So I think people uh, knew it was going to happen, knew they had to let it happen, but also saw that it was going to be important to uh, keep a quantitative awareness of uh, the displacement of effort uh, for the uh, ability to uh, return to that pre-COVID moment and better understand the expanded need that COVID uh, represents post uh, the uh, actual uh, kind of thrust of their outbreak. Um, It presented to us a glimpse of how platforms, when in place, can be rapidly mobilized uh, in areas that um, are the same type of work uh, and skills needed, but also uh, become the platforms where retraining uh, and uh, combining uh, new um, uh, partnerships uh, really emerged, and I think uh, that that is uh, is is also part of the story. So, so Mark, let me
0: come to you on this because um, you were on you were a member of this independent panel. Uh, for pandemics uh response and preparedness looking at how well we did and and you also had some pretty tough recommendations for going forward which we'll get into but um at a thirty eight thousand foot level what did the panel think went well and and also went wrong
1: oh the well part's a little bit easier not much um, <laughs> um you know I, the I think it was uh, a catastrophic example of the failure of our international uh, organi- systems, I would say, uh, to respond. I think WHO did as a fantastic job, as good a job, fantastic, as good a job as they could under the circumstances and the gross limitations that are uh, placed on them and the on uh, unrealistic expectations. Um, but I think at root, what it revealed is we do not have an international system to respond to pandemics, Um, international to regional to national, and actually the other way around, from communities to nations to regions to uh, an international network to identify threats, respond rapidly to them uh, and um, prevent them from, we're gonna have outbreaks uh, for the, we are going to have outbreaks, but we don't have a system to identify those outbreaks and respond to them. There's also been way too much emphasis on surveillance. I mean, um, it's not like we, we knew in mid-December, mm. uh, and certainly by mid-January that there were, this was going to be a, this was a real threat. No one did anything until April, May, June, and then it was, and that was a nationalistic, har- terrible response.
0: Well, I wanted to pick up on that because for me, the the most heartbreaking. Aspect of this, and, and and having spent a career in trying to build um, effective, sustainable models of access to treatment, we displayed in the global north a, a, a appalling sort of vaccine populism. Um well, we did the just same. Let's let be honest.
1: We did the same with antiretrovirals. It wasn't until we had our pandemics under our HIV epidemics under control that we even began to think remotely about. The massive number of people in Africa and what we could do there. So this isn't the first time we've done that.
0: Why didn't uh, we learn from it, though?
1: Well, we have a tendency not to learn from anything. Um, and yet, yeah, to be honest, I, I, we're no better off two and a half years in than we were at the beginning. I think we've actually taken a step taken a step back. We had my, one of the things that went well was was coordination and interaction among the R and D community um, and sharing of information in real time which allowed us to develop um, vaccines in a very rapid period of time. We got very lucky there. People are, I think, way overestimating the capacity to respond to more complex viruses. But look at monkeypox. I mean, for God's sake, we have a vaccine stockpiled. We have therapies stockpiled. We have diagnostics available. Uh, for a virus that doesn't spread quite so easily um, and it has been pretty contained. And we still messed it up two and a half years into (laughs) uh, uh, COVID. I mean, how much more of an example do you need of our absolute failure? And from a nationalistic perspective, I mean, it's been reported and just appalls me that the U.S. allowed 20 million vaccine doses to expire in our stockpile rather than sending them to West Africa where the disease is endemic. I mean, mm. how much more do we need to learn uh, that those 20 million doses could have prevented monkeypox from breaking out theoretically into a into a global pandemic? And we let them expire on our shelves.
0: So, and we did that because we didn't consider, um, you know, sub-Saharan Africa to be a priority globally. Um, this concept of nobody's safe until everyone's safe is not something that is really embedded. I think that's what I'm hearing from both of you in, in our political discourse. There was one other element of the COVID response uh, that, that I thought was really pretty terrible. And, um, and it comes from actually health infrastructure that you both were instrumental in establishing. South Africa's uh, diagnostics and surveillance management um, systems. And in South Africa, they picked up, identified the Omicron uh, variant very early on. And what was the world's response? We closed our doors to South Africa rather than seeing them perhaps as the canary in the coal mine. And and again, why do you think we got it so
2: wrong? You know, um, we did get it wrong uh, and we've never really gotten it right. Um, the the, the reality is we have an idea of a global health community that acts rationally and responds to data. But the truth of it is that um, there are pieces that are functional and uh, pieces that are uh, non-existent and the overall uh, gestalt becomes a dysfunctional, uh, episodic, non-accountable system. And I would underline uh, the lack of accountability. Uh, we are uh, we have already sensitized populations to health care, to who gets health care and who doesn't get health care. The idea that you can buy health care and if you can't pay for it, you don't get it is deeply accepted and internalized in most of your developed world settings. There are exceptions, but most of your developed world accepts that dynamic. That construct limits, um, preserves uh, inaction and allows for, in the face of data and information, um, a uh, a lack of a coordinating nucleus. Uh, and I think that we've not reached the threshold where the ideal description of an international health uh, response and IH, you know, R in the 2005, a good description of how it should work, um, doesn't. And uh, I, I guess I have to say that um, the rise of awareness of this inability to allow people to benefit from the science we already know um, has uh, has not come with us in climate change, and it certainly hasn't come with us in global health threats, uh, and even when they threaten security issues, uh, we still receive to a nationalistic response. And it's largely because those are the systems that we can engage with. The systems that kind of go between national agendas uh, are not strong or non-existent. So I, I it sounds awfully negative, but I think that is an honest description of where we are. Well, there's yeah, something... I, I, in- no, go ahead, Mark. Go
1: ahead. I, I mean, I completely agree with Eric. I, I think the root of it is we continue to think of pandemics as primarily health issues and look to the World Health Organization, which is a you know a member organization of ministers of health who are often the least powerful people in their governments or among the least powerful people in their governments. Pandemics are primarily socio-political economic phenomenon generated by a health threat. Um, but they're not the response will never succeed in the health sector because it is fundamentally socioeconomic and political. And that's why you have closing of borders when it makes no sense when all of us in health knew that it probably didn't even start in South Africa. I mm-hmm. mean you know, I know it didn't start but they identified it. And so mm-hmm. what we, we respond by politically, by shutting down our borders. Well, the proper response would have been sending as much money in as possible to identify it, which is what they did, to to basically Um, give them an incentive to report it. You know, for go back to um, the original Ebola, well, not the original, but the catastrophic Ebola outbreak uh, uh, about a decade ago when it spread across countries. Countries, and this happens over and over again with, with diseases, countries don't want to report them. So they get out of control before they're reported. Because what's the response to them? Well, you sh- this happened with Mexico with H1N1, where people use the outbreak of H1N1, even though it had nothing to do with the with the pigs themselves. It was called pig flu. To other parts of Latin America that w- didn't want to import b- pork from from Mexico for nationalistic reasons, started cutting off <laughs> pork from Mexico because more Mexico reported H1N1. Um, so we 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 disincentivize. And the interaction that, are, that is necessary by these kinds of responses. Whereas the right response, and here the IPPR and the G20 panel uh, have basically the same recommendation. David Miliband um him a lot of credit for putting it forward. We need to have a pool of money in the hundreds of millions that you can, you can actually have forward funded, basically, that you draw down on as soon as there's an outbreak. And hundreds of millions of dollars go into countries that raise their hand um, so that you can stop the going from an outbreak to a pandemic. But instead of that, what we do is penalize them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so why would someone raise their hand? Um, so, you know, the whole system, it, until we link the health to the socio-political economic, which we do not do, uh, you're not gonna get out of this. And that's why the principal recommendation of the panel um, that everything flows from is that you can't do one thing. So everyone's now, oh, let's do surveillance or let's do human research. You, let's do better pharmaceutical. You can do each of those pieces. We're still going to have pandemics uh, until you have an organized structure that, that emanates from the countries and country ownership in communities to the country, to the region. And really, that's where the focus of work should be. Um, and then international at the head of state level, because yes. all the heads of state can manage the socioeconomic political consequences. And then you have to have all the sectors involved, which is something we learned from HIV. Without the private sector and the faith community and those deep engagements at the very beginning and in the response, it never would have worked. Um, but we, do, the private sector is just supposed to do pharmaceuticals when the private sector is where a lot of people work and they can be involved in prevention and, and, and response. Um, we do not think in an interconnected way, which goes back to our first conversation on COP twenty-seven. We are still just in, in our and I let I would just say that our global institutions have done phenomenal things and had had phenomenal responses, but none of the organizations that exist today, national or international, are built for rapid response or for multi-sectoral response. And until we remake and restructure ourselves. Um, we will always be slow. We will always be behind. Uh, and we cannot, with our current organizational structures and the way we think, um, we cannot respond. So, so,
0: we so have to what, you're, what you're saying is that the kind of multisectoral response that, again, the three of us were involved in, uh, and me particularly from um, the community and then the private sector, broader private sector, response that we thought we were getting together in the early 2000s. Many of our listeners and viewers coming to this new will not be aware of that, and we haven't been able to institutionalize and 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 develop that further. But here's the thought: coming this fall, uh, we had the seventh replenishment of the Global Fund to fight AIDS, TB, and malaria, um, and you know it is a it is a platform, if you like, of Country-led programs, as you call, as you were describing mark, that that has had a huge impact over the last 20 odd years in saving lives from AIDS, TB and malaria. And it started to um, adapt uh, and have become part of the the COVID response. We saw that in many settings, and the way that its funds were able to be diverted uh, or, or reprioritized, I should say. But at the end of the replenishment we didn't achieve the $18 billion that we were looking for. We did achieve just over $14 billion from a range of governments and and foundations and others. And I just, uh, I guess two questions for you both. Do you see that replenishment as a success as a fa- or a failure? Was it um, glass half empty or half full? Um, and then whether we can really start looking at the Global Fund um, as a platform that we could adapt in other settings. But the replenishment itself, what were your thoughts on that?
2: I'll let Mark go. He spent so much time in that orchestration. Having run two of them. <laughs> um, uh,
1: so, I, I mean, I, don't, I think it was an unqualified success given the circumstances. So you had um, the United States and President Biden hosting, which is, Phenomenal. Second time, President Obama also hosted one, I was privileged to be executive director at the time. had the United States, Germany, Japan, the European Commission, a number of Nordic countries, uh, increasing their commitments um, by 30%, despite everything else going on in the world. The fundamental problems were Italy uh, and the UK, and those remain the fundamental problems. Neither one of them pledged. And that's why the number is so low. And we still don't know what their pledges are going to be. And certainly the new government in Italy is not, you know, I would not be putting some bets down on much money coming out of Italy, which is a shame. The UK, you know, they could cut, they're cutting everything. They're cutting all of the, their international commitments and, and uh, some by 100%. Yeah. So, we have to wait to see what the new government, or maybe next week we'll have a new government again um, in the UK. Yeah, you know, whoever the new government is actually going to make the decision. Um, uh, the the um, you know, fortunately, the UK's relationship with the US is is probably its most important relationship. And so, since President Biden hosted, hopefully that they they won't go to zero; they'll go to some somewhere in between. Well, the other thing I mean, that is
0: um <laughs> that is in
1: to able to do it also the links to global health security. So that was the United States. I mean, the United States put $3.5 billion in the global fund and no one else followed. Um, and that's a problem for specifically for pandemic response. Um, then the U.S. Congress led on that, but the administration was fully supported. And I think that was a hugely important move. Be- and Rebecca Katz, before COVID actually, had done an analysis of the Global Fund. Rebecca Katz at Georgetown too, mm-hmm. one of the and was in the administration. One of the leaders in the world on global health security. She did an analysis of the Global Fund pre-COVID and said, "Look, a third of the resources you can easily count as going towards pandemic preparedness and response because of the investments in systems, what you would use for case identification, finding the laboratory infrastructure, the links between communities and the the region the the, the, the within the countries regionally and then nationally." All of this is part of pandemic preparedness and response. So uh, there is no, gra- there's been no greater investment in health systems than has gone into HIV, TB, and malaria, which includes uh, the United States response for through PEPFAR and the President's Malaria Initiative, through and through the Global Fund, and those right. massive investments of the last twenty years um, in systems that allowed for, and this is so important in the case of something like HIV, lifelong therapy, which is very different than shorter-term therapy for malaria or, or even TB. You have to do lifelong therapy, and the system you need for lifelong therapy is fundamentally different in every aspect, the healthcare aspects, the supply chain aspects, and logistics systems, communication systems, all of that,
0: And monitoring every systems, systems are yeah.
1: Are the basis for the response to any pandemic. And if you want to maintain them, and this is something we did at IPPR, why did some countries do well? Well, they maintained, after SARS, their pandemic response systems. The only way to maintain those systems, because we're going to have pandemics intermittently, new pandemics, new pandemic threats intermittently, is to fight current pandemics. Mm. Uh, I, and that's how you maintain the systems. And HIV, TB, and malaria, in some parts of the world, are the fundamental systems. In other places, you could do it around hypertension, diabetes. Uh, whatever the threats are, health threats are, and integrate these. But you can't, you're not going to maintain a system for something that happens once every five to 10 years and expect it to function. Use the current pandemic systems, (laughs) invest in those so that they have the surge capacity to respond when needed.
0: Well that's our that's our top line message out of this podcast and, and and there is an aspect to this around the um therapeutic and prevention diagnostics approaches that I want to come back to you both on but Eric going back to Mark's comments about the United Kingdom our friend Andrew Mitchell has been appointed the um uh, development overseas development secretary and he's got a place back in cabinet what do you think we need to do to uh, to get the British to step up to the plate? Because it's it's sort of they're beginning to see this. They, there wasn't going to be senior leadership at COP, um, King Charles, uh, but Ricky, Richie Sunak uh, showed up in the end. Uh, do you think with someone like Andrew, we have a chance of getting them to see sense?
2: Yes. Uh, I think um, Andrew's role uh, in his shadow government uh, um, position in 09, 10 uh, really spoke, even then, to a lot of the issues Mark brought up. Uh, I think that he, for reasons of his background, um, has a deeper understanding of the um, infrastructure needed around uh, pandemic preparation. Uh, I think Mark's statement of uh, the way to prepare for a pandemic is to keep responding to it um, is is really a very clever way to give people the a, a understanding of um, of the need for that uh, commitment to a function uh, that can wax and wane as as you put it surge with need but never really fades. Away, uh, we're smart enough to do that. Uh, we can uh, uh, prepare people, uh, especially in the shadow of an event uh, close. But I think that um, uh, when you're close to the to the actual uh, outbreak, but I think that the dialogue that's needed in the UK will be a um, uh, needs to be aggressive, and I think he will be able to actually put a purse string around it and deliver it. So I'm thrilled that he actually has achieved a cabinet position. Uh, I know we've all talked to him over the years, but I I haven't spoken to him in a couple of three years, but now this makes it um, exciting that he's uh, being valued for the uh, knowledge and I think role that he uniquely uh, offers. Right now, one, one of the other things that you've both
0: touched on is this multi-sectoral approach and... Um, a a companion piece to this episode will be one that we're doing with frontline aids, looking at the pandemic response. Pandemic response for whom? With local communities. But in this section of the podcast, I'd really like to focus on what we see the role of the private sector, particularly those working um, in the healthcare field. And, And so to kick it off, I feel and as someone who's worked very much in this field over the last 20-odd years, I feel that we've taken some steps back. Um, you know, the the uh, inability to make vaccines truly global um, and some pretty ridiculous, I think, half-arsed efforts to try and... Um, then make a few vaccines available on occasion should the wind be pointing in the right direction you know industry itself has taken a step back but i think there's also been some steps back in un leadership taking a a more confrontational approach with the um, with the vaccines pharmaceuticals and diagnostics industries and i i just wondered where you where you both see us going from here. We've all tried to build these kind of public-private partnerships, Mm -hmm. but they don't seem to have had the resilience that we would have
2: hoped for in the COVID experience. You know, I can speak just briefly to um, to the need continuing and the frustration and being unable to kind of find a formula that, is acceptable to the corporate ROI drive uh, and um, and the needs of the larger population who really will never be able to uh, respond uh, with uh, the pricing that they come up with. Um, and I uh, I think creating a space where the discussion around um, the need to please shareholders and um, uh, p- and embrace a profit matched with the need for increased access and availability uh, to the populations that need it on a medical scientific level uh, needs to be part of our approval process for drugs. Uh, not to uh, create an enemy, but to truly create the partnership that we haven't achieved. Uh, in uh, working with the R&D aspects of drug development that are also linked to drug access, and uh, especially in low-income countries. Uh, I believe that we are smart enough to put that discussion together uh, in a protected way uh, that allows for the corporate needs to be flushed out and clear in the discussion Uh, to um, kind of the global community who ultimately needs to find the resources to cover this. So, yeah. So bear me out a a second. I think it,
0: honestly, it's probably fairly obvious for treatments and for vaccines. And I I, I noted that you all and our good friend, Peter Piot called for, you know, local manufacture of vaccines in the South uh, as part of this overall preparation. But and you both know this. I've I've become quite obsessed with with what's going on in the diagnostic side of things, particularly as long acting um, injectables come into the play for the management of HIV prevention and treatment. And what has really surprised me is that the there is a a really fundamental lack of understanding of what the technology is that we have, how it might be used, but also uh, how we produce it. And and this um, give you an example. There's a, a recent report from Path and Accenture looking at access strategies for diagnostics. It's good, very good in parts, but it it makes the argument that the model that we took for HIV therapies could be applied to diagnostics, and I think they were imagining that these were all point of care. What kind of point-of-care diagnostic tests, I'm not really sure, but that you could manufacture these locally and um you know, wham bam, you know, you've 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 got the diagnostic side of it. Whereas in reality, it's much more complicated. There is this interplay between the need for strong, high-throughput lab-based diagnostic networks with frontline point-of-care tests um and, and again the question of availability and affordability of those frontline point of care tests is is also up in the air so so how might we start going about getting the international community to think more um more effectively about how to deal with that side of the equation um how do we root our conversations in evidence and science and not aspiration
1: so uh, you know um, a lot of groups have called for ma- local manufacture, but it has to be intelligent manufacture. We've been having these conversations around HIV drugs for a long time, um, uh, and IPPR, IPRPR, and others, have, you know, and the Africans themselves have a long-term sustainability plan. I think the conversation is misplaced talking about manufacture. To be honest, you have to own discovery. You will, we will never get out of this out of manufacturing. Um, um, be, if 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 your target product profile begins with we can have a minus seventy requirement because it's we can do that in high income countries you're never going to have access uh, for for a long time.
0: When you say minus seventy, you mean in terms of the, yeah, the I mean, temperature for, the, for storage?
1: The, the, the RNA vaccines required, you know, the early ones required minus seventy degrees. But if your target product profile is agnostic to your temperature requirement, it's by definition not going to be global for a long time. And that's exactly what we see, right? So you have to own discovery. And I also think this is, this is how we get out of a lot of our world's problems. We, do, we, we talk a good game on innovation, but we don't fundamentally have innovation. We have restricted access to innovation in the same way we have restricted access to production. Um, and that restriction on access to resources for discovery, for research and development, beginning at discovery, going through translational to, until you own that, you cannot, you will never get out of it by having production capacity alone. Nor will you be able to ever export that. If you can produce at a lower cost, you will never be allowed to export it because you will be restricted from doing so by the licensing agreements that allow you to manufacture. So I think what we need to be investing in is opening up uh, innovation in low and middle income countries where phenomenal ideas are and great, great people and institutions. And if we let a new generation, and Africa is 75% of people under 25, you don't need the educational doctoral system. You don't need all that stuff. I swear to God, a college kid could come up with an RNA vaccine with what's published right now. now. We, we build all these structures and things that, that limit that limit access to, to discovery, that limit access to research and the, the research and development processes. We don't need to be doing that. And so let's invest in all of our future, because innovation is all of our future, and invest in actual innovation and kind of take the shackles off of the early parts of research and development, which was discovery and innovation, and the translation and how we do clinical research and where we do clinical research and how it's funded, and switch to a global innovation uh, opportunity. That's how we get out of this mess. We can do all we want on production. It's not gonna solve the fundamental problem until, and nor will we ever have the rapid responses that we're going to need, unless we have everyone in the world, all this innovation possible. That's, that's how we can solve climate change. We can eliminate pesticides and we can We can solve nearly all of our problems if we actually unshackle, unleash, Innovation from the beginning with discovery, and then allow the production piece to happen. But not just allow, but invest in it. But we have to do the end-to-end parts of research and development uh, in an open, innovative way, and that's how we get out of. That's the only way out of this problem.
0: In my view. So, so that te- that I think makes great sense to me from uh, the therapeutics and from the vaccine, uh, the vaccine side. Um, and diagnostic. Well, and but but in the but we all want, I guess, to get to a point where we have a low cost, uh, high performance, easy to use diagnostic, multi-platform, i.e., that it covers a lot of uh, a, 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 a lot of pathogens, HIV, um, TB, potentially, uh, but also perhaps some non-communicable disease um, functions as well. But the technology isn't there yet, and so. Uh, you, you know i i think it's important that we we focus on that aspirational um but i remember in the um early days of the 90 campaign for um uh 90% an HIV campaign that UNAIDS launched around you know 90% of people know their status 90% have access to antiretrovirals and 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 90% have um undetectable viral loads and 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 the call was we need viral load and we need it now we need point of care viral load and we need it now and it didn't exist it didn't exist in the form that we we wanted so what would be really interesting is to get your sense of how we how we make these trade offs now and and how we um, ensure that we are able to monitor um, no, first of all diagnose effectively and I think uh, you know for HIV. The Global Fund and PEPFAR has gone a, a long way there. But how do we do that in a way that is um, sustainable and really does bring the kind of, of uh, country engagements? And, you know, could there be economies of scale, I don't know, between urban and, and peri-urban areas? Um, I don't know, Eric. What what, what are your thoughts on, on this?
2: Yeah, um, the, really uh, stimulating thoughts from both of you about this. Um, it's a huge issue. Um, I think that what makes the most sense to me is uh, the marriage between um, focusing on what would be the marriage between private sector and public sector agendas and uh, where would be the forum, the platform, the uh, site where that discussion and those partnerships could be fleshed out and achieved. Because I think learning, uh, finding a way, an innovative way to allow for profit to be generated uh, by bundling up tests. This is something that we've, I've talked to both of you about individually, but allow for a bundling of tests on platforms we've already built in, in disease sectors like HIV, like TB, like malaria, Ah, uh, maternal and child health, reproductive health. There are platforms that are people and sites and procurement distribution systems that are present, that with a uh, a uh, a mind that thinks in terms of uh, how can we put uh, diagnostics together that address the disease prevalence of of these diseases, both infectious and NCDs, in this population, using these same platforms, we uh, might be able to see a, a profit-generated effort that allows for um, the presence of these uh, diagnostics in settings that would never be able to afford them. And um, I, th- I believe we are smart enough to do that if we allow, like Mark is saying, that innovative um, energy to perfuse uh, the uh, the discussion, and especially in settings where that approach is not um, supported, taken advantage of.
0: Now, you've you've both been very strong supporters of the African Society for Laboratory Medicine (ASLM) um, as a as a way of um, harnessing and empowering that creativity from the. Uh, from the region itself, which I completely agree is is really where the action is going to be at. Um, I wonder that I think there is a role for them, I hope Nkabile won't mind me saying this, but f- for them really to lead the charge here in determining, you know, what it is that they need and um and helping us understand how we support that, what we need to do and and I does that resonate with the with the pair of you? Do you see this kind of um, uh, sort of institutional um, southern leadership uh, helping us drive the agenda?
1: It has to. Uh, it's the only way to do it. I mean, again, just go back to target product profile. What interest would it be for a large pharmaceutical company to come up with a uh, Rapid tests that will include tuberculosis and schistosomiasis, and I mean, there is no incentive, in, or to do a rapid HIV test. There's, we don't need them in the U.S. and Europe. Um, we don't need them for so. What incentive? There is no incentive for that TPP. The only incentive is if you is if it's driven by people in other parts of the world that have different health needs. NCDs are, yeah, of course, for hypertension, diabetes. But you know, in the U.S. and Europe, we don't need it to be fifty cents. In fact, companies don't want it to be fifty cents. So you know, you have to have the the target product profile developed by the people who are going to be affected, which means having communities involved from the very beginning in research and discovery, which is what we're trying to do on HIV cure in Africa and a whole bunch of other things. But the community needs to be involved from the beginning. You know, had had an African group been involved in the early TPP for the mRNA vaccine, no one would have said, let's start with minus 70, right? So um, you, it has to be driven by people on the ground who know what they need. And then you have to, they have to be resourced to have the innovation to come up with the products and to produce to produce the discovery through to
0: production. So sort of stepping now to the broader global health security agenda, and I realise we're coming up to the top of the hour. Um, there was something that Helen Clark said, uh, who Helen, I think, was one of the co-chairs of the uh, independent panel, Mark. And she she said that um, it was so noticeable that the um, uh, IAEA, the uh, uh, UN um, Atomic Agency, was able to get... Uh, into Ukraine and into the um, nuclear reactors, um, but the same kind of access was not available to um, to the public health community to get into the the key labs that uh, we needed to do so, and and it just struck me very forcefully that here was an example um, of where we just aren't at the same table. We're just. Or, or we might be at the table, but we're not at the top of the table, when it comes to um, responding to clear, present, even imminent threats. And just what is your sense of how we drive health into the global security agenda? Do you want to start, Mark? I can't believe I shut you both up. That is the that well, first. I was
1: going for Eric to answer first because I just <laughs> did the last answer, but- This is an area I think a lot about because, you know, the next pandemic is as likely to come from. I don't believe this one came from a laboratory. I'm pretty certain the data are are clear on that, but um, we'll never know for sure. Um, But uh, similar to atomic energy, our biggest threat for biosecurity is intentional or unintentionally. And there are people intentionally trying to create uh, weaponized uh, pandemics, uh, for sure. We know this. Um, but it can also happen accidentally, depending on how we're doing the laboratory work, if, we, if it's not properly controlled. That will require a global treaty and agreement to do so, which is what Helen's talking about, and IPPR does call, call for a treaty. But let's be clear, IAEA hardly gets to all the problems, and what often happens in these things are the good actors follow the treaty and the bad actors don't. Um, and put up roadblocks to it. So I agree completely with Helen that we need such a structure, but then we need to be clear headed about what it can and cannot do. Um, and it's not just looking at those bio threats, but part of it is to evaluate countries' ability to respond to a, a pandemic threat and then support them. But if it's punitive rather than supportive, it's never going to work. And IEA still is more punitive. So, how do we? Change the incentives to supportive rather than punitive in all regards, so that we can get better answers. Um, but then we should also be looking at the pure biosecurity of uh, weaponization of of pandemic threats, which is which is increasingly possible.
2: I would just uh, agree with that uh, and say that um, uh, the uh, support for a review and investigation when supported by the largest economies in the world, will get access to it eventually. Uh, and I think that uh, the IAEA's um, clout being a treaty, which which uh, does put it in a different category, um, has the backing of kind of the world in a different way. Post COVID, people now I believe may see the um, the ramifications more clearly connected to the pandemic uh, carnage it creates, and may be willing now to think about a treaty for a health-related uh, issue, which, which uh, I know the um, uh, the uh, was re- was the recommendation. But so leave with that. And there's an
1: active, you know, Don Yamamoto was appointed by the administration to be our chief negotiator. And the negotiations have been going on, but, um, you know, treaties aren't going to solve, treaties don't solve problems either. <laughs> uh, they, they help, but they don't solve the problem. It just gives you a framework. You have to actually invest in and maintain those systems, which comes back to the principal theme. Let's respond to current pandemics and build the system so they can search to respond for other pandemics in all ways, including New technology, new approaches while we're protecting ourselves from biosecurity risks
0: so we' we' we've sort of come to the end of our time. Is there anything that we've missed anything that y- you think in the context of this conversation that that we ought to flag up say for example, um you know John and Kaingongng's leadership of PePFAR, what do you want to see from him? um we didn't really cover PEPFAR in great detail, um, although it's both firmly in both of your DNAs, but other things that we haven't really touched upon.
2: You know, I guess I, I think you've done a broad um, brush. Uh, I I think it has sounded maybe a little too negative, even though it should sound negative. I, I, I do see um, hope, and part of it is John Nkengasong's, uh taking over of the PEPFAR platforms and his deep understanding of the struggles that sub-Saharan African countries in particular, but also globally, are in both with the COVID response, but also the response to uh, the three diseases. Um, He has an unusual background that gives him credibility in both political and scientific arenas just as we need that convergence to be intensified. Uh, If Africa can lead that uh, march uh, at best, at a minimum, be central in that march, uh, I believe that uh, John will be able to find that space. And I know Mark and you both are uh, committed to uh, supporting that effort, but I believe it's the effort for the planet. Uh, the movement of platforms into a broader uh, response to the needs of the same populations we've already captured with three diseases, Uh, using those platforms to now stop those same individuals from dying from hypertension, diabetes, and coronary artery disease, undiagnosed and untreated. Uh, It's time to move without a receding of the effort, but a completion of the promise that we've already started. That's what it is for me.
1: Yeah, I'll just agree completely. I mean, John was an inspired choice. He is um, going to be uh, the best coordinator ever. Uh, sorry, Eric. I, <laughs> um, I think, you know, he's he's got, uh, it was just a remarkable choice. And I think what the State Department and the administration has proposed in terms of consolidating other all other pandemic work in the State Department, which is kind of scattered into one office, and to dual hat John, both as the PEPFAR coordinator and to oversee that office, uh, is exactly what's needed. And I think it's what, you know, the Africans, you know, let's be honest, they had to give him up as the head of the Africa CDC, and he's spectacular. Um, uh, Africans expect him to be involved in pandemics. There's a reason they were willing to, you know, let him go. Um, and not just the pandemics of HIV, and you know, HIV and TB and other pandemics that he's directly responsible for, TB related to HIV, but also broader. Uh, and so I think the State Department's taking the actions, and John's exactly the right person to be able to uh, figure that out. How do we strengthen the HIV response by having the systems in place that will allow us to get to the end of the AIDS epidemic, but also will be there for surge for other pandemics? And as Eric said, his political cloud. I mean, he has, he has heads of state on you know, his, his speed dial. I mean, the, he was their go-to guy. And, uh, and he's so respected in all of the world. He just received a big award in Berlin uh, totally appropriately. So you know, he's got everything it takes. Um, and I hope everyone gets behind him and supports his vision as we approach the 20th anniversary of PEPFAR in, com- in coming May. Um, uh, there's been many of evolutions, PEPFAR does not look, Eric evolved it and it's evolved and evolved and evolved as it should. Now is a key inflection point, um, uh, for another evolution. And John's the right person at the right time that feeds into the entire conversation we had today.
0: Well, with that. Uh, What a nice way of bringing this conversation to a close. Um, A message of hope and enthusiasm about our our, our next generation of leaders. Um, Mark, Eric, thank you so much. You are shots in the arm. (laughs) Well, that's it for this episode. Thank you to Eric and Mark. Thanks also to our director and producer, Eric Aspera from NewsDoc Media. A Shot in the Arm podcast is a project of the Global Health Reporting Center and a member of the Health Podcast Network. This episode was produced with kind support from Roche Diagnostics. And finally, a big thanks to you. Have a great week and a safe week, everyone.